Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In this interview, I talked to Darren Camus, the CEO of iPore Labs. Darren has a background of living all over the earth on multiple, I think, South America, North America, Europe, Asia. He is been in crypto since 2011. He's a senior advisor on Cardano and also an active angel investor uh, and advisor on other projects. iPore Labs is all about the derivatives market. So they're a, a B2B solution. They're trying to attract in institutional investors and companies even within crypto that want to uh, manage the wealth uh, of their assets in a more sophisticated way. We go deep into derivatives. He explains to me what a derivative is, how it exists in traditional finance, how it is going to exist, but doesn't quite yet in the crypto world, and where you can go beyond that as well. So for traders, people interested in trading, some of this you might know, but for people who are interested in trading and getting to know the opportunities within crypto and just how it all works, this is an awesome awesome conversation. So I hope you enjoy. Here is Darren Kimass. All right, Darren, uh, just like that, we're live. Um, I'd love to kick off this conversation just to get to know you a little more, what you were working on maybe before uh, your current project, the iPOR. Uh, what was your like pre-crypto career and interests? Well, I... I... I don't really have a, too much of a pre-crypto career. So uh, I actually started in crypto in, in 2011. Uh, so I'm actually calling in right now from Colorado, which is where I'm from. You know, I grew up in the middle of the mountains, uh, but I actually left the U.S. In the, in the middle, you know, in the financial crisis. So 2009, I was working in, uh, you know, luxury real, real estate and property management. And I ended up having a lot of friends from South America, right? And so... Um, you know, in, in, you know, Southern hemisphere in their winter, you know, when kids are on college uh, or sorry, in summer, when they're on a college break in North American winter. So you had a lot of people coming to the ski resorts, had a lot of friends. So I ended up, uh, you know, picking up and uh, moving off to Chile. Uh, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I spent a, you know, a little time as a, a professional poker player. And then I met this group of expats at a barbecue and uh, they're like, uh, you know, well, we're starting a, a Bitcoin exchange. And this was in June, 2011. And I said, what's, what's Bitcoin? And, uh, you know, I got a funny explanation. Uh, you know, it's like, it, it's like, uh, uh, crypto anarchy peer to peer BitTorrent for money. Uh, and yeah. I thought at that point, you know, I had no idea what they were talking about. Uh, went down the rabbit hole, spent a weekend digging in and I'm like, guys, I don't understand it all, but I'm in. 
And, uh, you know, let's say now here, 11 years later, I've gone through many like different ways and explanations uh, of how to explain Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, at the time it was maybe the worst explanation and coming back to it, maybe it's, it's the best. So, you know, I like the kind of first definition of, uh, what's your, what's your definition? Well, I mean, I, I like that, uh, you know, like, a P2P crypto anarchy BitTorrent for money one. It's a, uh, you know, it, it started out as a very terrible one and then it's turning to be, you know, kind of maybe the most precise one. So, uh, yeah, so I've been yeah, on, yeah. on crypto for about 11 years, um, on the, uh, on the exchange side and, uh, brokerage side. We used to be the number two to MT Gox back in the day. Um, you know, I was an advisor to Cardano. Uh, I did some stuff in security tokens for the past couple of years, preceding IPOR and now doing IPOR, which is, uh, let's say, deep DeFi. It's uh, DeFi interest rate derivatives. And so... And how did you progress? I'm curious to learn how, you know, you came at this from uh, not a technical background. How did you progress through the technical hills and valleys? Was it what Did you take a conscious effort to go deep and understand the technology or do you think about your expertise as being more strategic and high level understanding what different projects do and how they interconnect yeah i would say you know from a broad scale i'm a you know very high level thinker uh and more strategic uh macro view but you know at that time if we think about 2011 you know there were maybe 10 10,000 people in the world that were talking about bitcoin or crypto which was only bitcoin at that time right and because of this, you have a very restricted kind of set of materials. You have a very restricted set of, uh, you know, of educational pieces, and you really have to self-educate. So, you know, the first years were really just deep dives, uh, you know, self-education, uh, you know, reading front to back, uh, you know, different, uh, you know, of course, the Bitcoin white paper, different technical papers, going through the forums. You know, there was Bitcoin Talk at the time, which is where you could track all crypto projects. And really, uh, you know, follow like, some of the great thinkers, you know, uh, read, uh, read the primary resources, right? And so I don't come from a computer science background, but I have a good enough, uh, a good enough uh, understanding of how things work so that I can understand, let's say, that we want to build like a project like IPOR, you know, the feasibility, the different engineering trade-offs, you know, and this is a result of, let's say, you know, 11 years now of self-education, so. Mm. And what did you see? Was there an intersection of uh, maybe a convergence of different projects or some trend that you saw where you felt like IPOR being, I mean, I, I think of it, it's kind of one of the more complex to describe projects when I was doing research on it, but deep into derivatives markets. Um, I, yeah, how did you sort of realize that this was an exciting project to dive into? Yeah, so I, I mean, in, in in my career, you know, I've worked with some really, really talented people, and we've actually been at a, a lot of times very much too early for things. So we're looking at, you know, maybe a, a decentralized audit protocol with a foundation, you know, back in 2014. We're looking up setting up at the same time, uh, you know, uh, an exchange traded product, which had, you know, a basket of cryptocurrencies, which at that time, you know, most of the currencies from 2014 wouldn't be around, but it would be very heavy, let's say Bitcoin, Ethereum and Litecoin. Right. So we have a lot of these projects that were probably too early. And, uh, you know, a lot of these things come, uh, you know, much later on. You know, even uh, in 2015, I started a payment company called BitNexo. We were doing wire, uh, essentially using the Bitcoin blockchain to, uh, you know, do wire transfer, replace the wire transfer system between, uh, you know, Latin America and Asia. Um, so, uh, 
particularly Ch- uh, Chile, Mexico, and, and China, right? So a lot of these things, you know, were very early on, and maybe the ecosystem wasn't developed enough. Uh, so if we fast forward to, let's say, 2020, uh, you know, I'm in love with DeFi because you have these consumer-ready uh, applications, you know, that are friendly enough that your average person can use it, right? Uh, and so, you know, if we take a, uh, let's say, a fundamental breakdown of, of, of DeFi projects and, you know, considering the current market meltdown, it's a good time to look at fundamentals. You know, there's a... Uh, you, you have to go with, uh, you know, does this create some economic value, right? And really boiled down uh, myself and Dimitri, my co-founder, we're really taking a deep dive at the end of DeFi summer and saying, okay, so there's really just fundamental value in DEX and lending, right? There's some economic mechanism, someone's paying to borrow and uh, they're paying back to the lender. Or in DEX, you have some exchange-traded volume and some basis points, you know, that go, you know, some, some fee structure, right? And both of those have these primary market uh, mechanisms, and then both of them have the derivatives that underpin these markets, right? And so if we look, we look around, you know, on the asset exchange side, you know, from the centralized version to the decentralized version, you know, what's going to happen? So we know on the centralized version, you know, everyone wants to be, you know, uh, the next BitMEX or Binance or FTX decentralized, and really DYDX is taking the cake on this currently, right? But very few people look at the credit markets and understand, you know, how it works, and so also part in my career, we're doing uh, actually risk recruiting, uh, you know, so that's I got my feet wet in, uh, you know, kind of um, hiring for risk managers. And at that time, you know, it was around the time of the LIBOR scandal. And so the LIBOR scandal, you know, in, in, in brief is that, you know, you essentially ask, uh, you know, these uh, 16 London banks what the interest rate should be. And uh, then you do a survey mechanism and then you print it. And that's the basis for hundreds of trillions of deals, right? And the problem where did they where did the banks get their where did the banks get the data from? Uh, the the banks it's a, I mean it's a, it's off their own books, right? So the LIBOR, uh, the London Interbank Offered Rate, was meant to be uh, let's say a, a free market benchmark rate, separate from uh, you know the Fed or the central banking rates, right? So it tells you you know what the banks are willing to lend to each other, you know, versus what the Federal Reserve or the or the or the Bank of England sets, right? Uh, the problem was it was being manipulated by the traders. Um, you know, someone will whisper to another, say, you know, hey, Mike, let's shave a basis point off here. Let's take the opposite side. You know, let's get in a couple million bucks and put it in our pocket, right? The bank, the banks were doing that. Uh, traders inside the banks. So this is uh, this is known as the uh, largest, uh, you know, largest rate fixing scandal in history, and that set off about a eight year, uh, you know, cessation of the LIBOR. Uh, but, you know, what we get from that is, uh, you know, a, a benchmark interest rate is quite good. It's quite useful because it gives the market transparency. It gives the market a basis to create different products, you know, anywhere from like, you know, if, if you take a home loan and they, uh, you know, they ask you, uh, do you want to pay the, uh, you know, fixed or, or floating or, you know, fixed or variable rate mortgage, right? Well, you have, you have a choice, you know, you're taking a, a chance that the rate might go up or down, or you can pay some fixed rate, but they're always going to give you a fixed rate at a higher rate than, than the variable or the floating. Why? Because uh, there's some instrument on the back end that's kind of pegging that, uh, that, that uh, you know, a debt cost in, in place. So in the home loan, uh, you know, kind of um, example, you get two things, right? So one, the initial price is being quoted off a benchmark rate, right? So people will quote, you know, or would quote LIBOR plus 50 basis points, for example. 
Right. And the other, this, this would be a quote, like a a bank would quote a a consumer who's trying to buy a house. Exactly. Exactly. So you have markup for the bank. Exactly. Um, and then on the other side, you have some interest rate derivative that the bank is using to hedge their risk. So essentially, you know, they offer, they offer the, uh, the, you know, the, the credit product, you know, they take a hedge and then they fix some spread and that's how you get your fixed rate mortgage, right? So then if we look at DeFi protocols, you know, these are very short-term uh, debt, right? It's, it's free-floating, uh, it has crazy volatility, and it's really, it's really nice, it's really interesting, it's really useful, because, uh, you know, you can use it permissionlessly, you just have to post collateral, and you can borrow, right? But it's really not useful for larger, you know, larger loans, you know, because you have this extreme rate risk. You know, we had seen some, uh, you know, the rates on these money markets like Ave or Compound go from like 3% to 30% in a 24-hour period, right? Well, also, in addition to that, I mean, isn't isn't the core existential problem with these market makers the fact that you have to put collateral nearly equal to the amount of loans? Like, if I'm taking out a million-dollar loan for a house, I don't put up a million dollars to take out a million-dollar loan. Yeah, actually, it's, even in crypto, it's worse. You put up a million five to get a million, right? So uh, Right, 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 exactly. Uh, but uh, one of the reasons that this exists in crypto is because, uh, you know, if you, if you do the partially collateralized, you have the the technological capacity to potentially infinitely rehypothecate, right? So if I put down, if I, let's say the million, right? So if you put down 200K to borrow, uh, 200K worth of ETH to borrow a million dollars, you can go about a million dollars worth of ETH, you know, to put down, uh, you know, $5 million to buy five, you know, and this has uh, this potential issue. So one of the reasons that you have this over collateralization mechanism in DeFi is because you have, you have this, uh, you know, rehypothecation risk. So, uh, and is, is the way that, uh, the traditional banking system gets around is through communication between banks. So if I go and I take a loan out from a bank, uh, that's going to be recorded on my, my credit bureau legacy. So they the bank will be able to look it up and say, does this person have outstanding debt? Yeah. And it's like logged centrally. Yeah. You, I mean, you essentially have the, uh, let's say the, uh, the, the risk profile and you also have the ability to collect, right? So, you know, if a bank's taking an extremely, is giving you an extremely risky loan and you have a low probability to pay it off, then, you know, it's a problem with their books and it'll be a more systemic problem. Plus they have the ability to enforce, you know, on, on legal contracts, you know, let's say with local law enforcement. So let's say it's a, it's a different set, right? But, you know, of course that way is much more capital efficient than, you know, this over collateralized uh, DeFi mechanism. So you, you get all these different trade-offs, you know, DeFi is really open especially if you're a whale and you can borrow against your, you know, uh, your collateral, you know, we can see that like if you're a, you know, as a startup founder, let's say, uh, you know, you have a lot of equity and you're, you're, let's say you're equity rich cash poor, you can uh, do securities lending. You can, uh, you know, lend your, lend against your shares and, and, and get some cash flow. And you can also maybe, uh, you know, avoid a, a capital gains action. Right. So, but how that, is that? Is that available today? Do, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right I mean, it's it's a, how a lot of uh, you know, like startup find, find uh, you know founders, let's say pre IPO or even IPO, you know, they can get some they can get some liquidity, you know, without having to pay you know the capital gains from selling the asset, and it actually uh, you know creates a debt. But you know that's only available for high net worth, and you know it's not really accessible for the average person, right? Again, you don't want. Is this like a? Sorry to interrupt you. Is this like a uh, secondhand marketplace or where 
Because I, I thought about that, but I hadn't seen other founders or heard about this before. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly, you know, standard practice, you know, securities lending, uh, you know, to get liquidity. Uh, if you have it, it's, uh, I think, um, what's his name? Uh, the, the Mavericks, Mark Cuban, he was tweeting about it. You know, what's the, what's, what's similar, you know, between, uh, uh, let's say DeFi and securities lending or, you know, uh, you know, he puts up some other asset as, as, uh, as collateral and can borrow against it, which is great, but you have this long approval process. You have this long paperwork process. Whereas in DeFi, you post the a- asset to a smart contract and you borrow against it instantly. So, He's saying, you know, in that case, I think he's arguing that the barrier to entry is is uh, is much lower in DeFi, as long as you have the assets, of course. And where where do is there a site that you're aware of that people are doing this, or is it through private security lenders? Uh, um, I'm I'm not I'm not I'm guessing you know like um, you know most uh, brokers can can help with that, but I'm I'm not I'm not familiar with a particular site you know specifically for. Securities lending. Yeah, just curious. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm all in on the crypto side and the DeFi side. So, well, I don't see any reason, really, structurally, why you couldn't have that be a crypto concept. Like, yeah. hey, if I own, you know, securities for a company, as long as I can validate that I own it with the company, yeah, then you might as. I mean, there's nothing stopping you from taking a loan out in crypto for that. Yeah, right? yeah, for sure. And I mean, even like, uh, you know, let's say the, the, the creation of like pre IPO marketplaces is, 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 is quite similar, you know? So if you look at like a DCG, right? Barry Silver, you know, his, uh, his background, he started a company called Second Market, which I believe is they were doing, uh, you know, Facebook pre IPO, uh, share sales. Uh, you know, it's taking the, uh, you know, the, the options, uh, and, and the shares documents and then creating a secondary market, you know, before that's, before it's public. So there's a lot of different ways that you can do this. Yeah. Yeah, obviously a lot of the regulations present creative constraints, we'll call them. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> when you move course. securities around. Of course. Um, so from this this industry or this landscape you're laying out, derivatives, what is a derivative? How do you define it? So a derivative is it's, it's something that gets us value from something else. Like So for example, in IPOR, uh, what we're doing is we're creating this, uh, let's call it a, you know, not a synthetic LIBOR, let's call it like a, you know, algorithm LIBOR for DeFi. So if we take that going back to, you know, the, Lon- the London banks talking to one another and presenting, say, okay, so this is our interbank lending rate, you know, for today, one month from now, three months from now, six months from now, one year, for example, we can do the same thing from car- smart contracts. So we survey not banks, but uh, protocols. So Right now, we're just tapping into the smart contracts of Aave, the smart contracts of Compound, and surveying those. And the good thing about those is they can't over or under report by a basis point. You know, they're open, they're transparent, they're auditable. So we get this like real time transparency from the blockchain that you don't necessarily get from, uh, you know, centralized financial services. And uh, so we, what we do is we take that and put it into, uh, you know, a, a benchmark weight, uh, a benchmark, um, a benchmark rate. And then we have this backend component and then we print a chain every so often because of just because of Ethereum gas fees. So you get this on-chain uh, IPOR rate or interprotocol offered rate, or you can also refer to it as the interprotocol overblock rate because we're sourcing it block over block, you know, on the Ethereum blockchain. And uh, okay, so what's a derivative? So a derivative, you know, the first derivative that we've built is called the, in, is an IPOR interest rate swap. So an interest rate swap is a very standard, you know, financial instrument. You have two parties that are that are exchanging cash flows. 
Uh, they're exchanging the fixed rate and the floating rate. Uh, and so what we do is we actually take that and uh, we create it, uh, you know, uh, essentially derivatives DEX. So instead of those two parties, we take kind of the best of DeFi. So one of the parties is always a passive liquidity uh, liquidity provider. So these guys, might, uh, these might be a depositor who has USDC, USDT, or DAI. And they're essentially, uh, you know, offering a request for quote. You know, they're offering a, a you know, a quote against a trader to trade. So uh, this derivative, um, you know, as the IPO rate moves up or down, you know, depending on what your fixed rate is, you're either paying or receiving against the pool. So this derivative instrument means that you're essentially just creating a, a market where you can go long or short against the interest rate. So as the interest rate moves up or down, you know, it changes the, uh, the payoff liabilities for one of the contract parties. So that means this derivative instrument is pegged to the movement of the IPOR index, either positive or negative. If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. Okay. So you are basically scraping comp, uh, Compound and Aave, and you're looking at what the uh, one-year, six-month, various time increment rates are. And then you're, you lost me a little bit in the middle there. So from that point, what, what, what's the next step? Yeah, okay. So yeah, we, uh, we actually were just getting a spot rate. Why? Because, you know, we don't really have these uh, long maturities. We don't have term structures in DeFi. Right. And that's a problem, but it's also an opportunity. Right. So, uh, you know, we essentially take a spot rate and we uh, so we create a market. Right. The market is essentially let's say you and I are uh, you want to enter into a swap. You think it's going to go up. I think it's going to go down. OK, so we enter it in at a certain rate. Right. So as it goes up, you know, I'm paying you. If it goes down, then you're paying me, for example, right? And uh, over all of these time periods where you were paying each other back and forth, once we close the contract, we settle the difference, right? So this is an instrument where we're just betting on the direction of the rate. and Of the interest rate. Yeah, of the, of the interest rate movement itself. So for example, let's say, uh, you know, you typically want to be a pay fixed if you're a borrower, 
right? Let's say you take a, a you know a loan at two percent, and two percent is great, but if it's up to three percent, you know it actually increases your borrowing cost by fifty percent, right? So why would you take a pay fix? Because in the case that the rate goes up, then you're winning from the contract, and you're able to use that extra winning to pay off you know the extra payment liability. On the, on the flip side, you know, if you're a lender, you don't want the rate to go down because uh, then you're losing, you know, a portion of your income. So these parties are usually at the, you know, the opposite sides of, of a swap. Hmm. So it, All right. So let, so, so in the case, like a, a, a use case, say somebody has, um, take a thousand dollars and they are, they are willing to lend that money in exchange for an interest rate. Yeah. The standard way would be you just put it on Ave, mm-hmm. and then there's a rate that's quoted to you, and you could deposit it into Ave smart contracts, and you're getting a return into the wallet over time based on whatever that rate is, and that rate changes, yeah. so it can go up and down yeah. in any direction. And then a derivative is a it's a derivative of that. So if you're 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 not interested in this strictly the interest rate, you're interested in the change of the interest rate. And the reason you'd be interested in that, the types of people interested in derivatives. This is this is where I'd like to learn a little bit more. So who who's typically uh, when you buy a derivative, mm-hmm. you're like you said, you're making these these transactions between people, yeah, who believe the rate's going to go up first down. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's really let's let's call them like three typecasts, right? So the first one is the risk management side, and that's hedging, right? Mm-hmm. So again, you know, a borrower doesn't want the rate to go up, while the lender doesn't want the rate to go down, right? So the hedge is just you insulate yourself against the rate risk movement. So either you're insulating yourself against a move up or a move down. Uh, I see. I see. The other side might be an arbitrage play. For example, if you can find, if you can find a marketplace where you can borrow it cheap, uh, uh, where you have this kind of like divergence from the, from the IPOR rate and you can lend it, you know, more expensive, then you can lock in those, those gains, right? Because those will typically revert to the norm. So if you have kind of these outlier rates, then you can, let's say, uh, you know, kind of uh, milk this rate or you can lock in the difference, you know, between two markets by taking a, you know, like uh, opposite contracts. Right. So let's say, uh, you know, uh, the IPO rate on on die is. Uh, uh, OK, so let's say, you know, IPO rate is uh, on, on die is one percent and oh, or sorry, it's two percent. You can borrow it for one percent. You know, you borrow it, you take a pay fixed loan, and then you find this outlier market where USDT, you know, is, is at 3%, but you can loan it at 4 right? So you flip the die to the USDT, you take a, you take a receive fix on the USDT, and you're essentially milking this, like, uh, let's call it risk-free arbitrage, depending on how you define risk-free. It's risk-free between stable coins, assuming that all stable coins are one, which is, uh, you know, $1, which is, uh, it's another, it's another piece. But that's, that's an example of an arbitrage, uh, you know, play. And then finally, you can just take a directional uh, bet. So if you think the rate's going to go up, you go long. If you think it's going to go short, you you go short. Or if it's going to go down, you go short. So uh, to to make to make that simple example, that last one, mm-hmm. if you think the rate's going to go up, you take the long. Or sorry, if you think the rate's going to go up, you would take. Uh, uh, you would take would, a pay fixed. Pay fixed, and to t- what would that look like? If I'm going to take a pay fixed, that means I come in with. USDT and I deposit it. Like, what? It, what would that mean to make a pay fixed long yeah, yeah, back yeah. on? Um, okay, so let me walk really quick through the instrument, right? So there's two parts in this. There's uh, there, there's the liquidity provider, uh, which is essentially underwriting the the instruments, and then there's the trader, right? So if you're a liquidity provider, you you either post a, you know one of the different stablecoins. So there's an IPOR rate for Dai, 
USDT and USDC. So you let's say let's call let's use the USDC uh, pool for an example. So let's say I you know I'm a passive uh, I'm a passive participant. I deposit USDC to the pool. So my 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 USDC is sitting there. It's uh you know it it has uh, it, it's there to take contracts right. And this automated market maker is essentially a pricing mechanism. So no matter what the rate is, it's going to take the position. It's going to take the, some conditions in the market, and it's going to say, "Hey, Mike, you know, at this point, if you want to take a pay fixed, you take it at this rate. If you want to take it a, a receive fixed, you take it at this rate." So if you want to take that contract, you will you will open a contract with USDC, which is a it'll take some USDC collateral, post it against my collateral that I've put in, and then that will be locked in the contract. And then at the end, you know, that will be paid out. Mm. And that currently uh, is available for withdrawal at any time. You can end the contract at any point. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we wanted to essentially create a, uh, you know, an instrument that matches this market, right? So if we look at a lot of traditional finance, you know, you have a, a set maturity, you have something like European options or which cannot, you know, they have to, you know, go to the, uh, you know, you, they end up maturity, right? But if you take like more of like an American style option or a cancelable contract, you know, you can open and close it at any time, right? So what we created first is a 28 day cancelable swap. So that, so what does that mean? It means that, for example, you, you're the trader. You come in, you can open this contract and you can close it at any time, right? Uh, and, so, you know, you can cut your, you can cut your loss. You can, you know, you can uh, lock in your profit. Uh, and then if it reaches maturity, either you can close it yourself or it can be closed by a decentralized uh, liquidator. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a, it's a 28 day cancelable swap. Uh, so we designed it this way to, um, you know, to match the, the Ave, the compound markets, which are extremely liquid, uh, very short term. And, yeah. you know, you mentioned the, the longer, the longer maturities are the different, the, let's say the IPOR rates, you know, the one month, three month rates. We're, we're just not there yet. But, you know, as these, uh, as we have a, you know, a term structure mature, then we'll start offering longer contracts. Uh, and, you know, this is, this is, uh, you know, how you start to build a yield curve in DeFi. Of the users you have, how many of them, if you had to guess, are professional? Uh, crypto traders who are spending the majority of their working hours in front of terminals and thinking about these kind of things versus just the average person who's coming in and making a trade. Okay, so w- one caveat: right now we're on we're on Rinkeby public testnet, so uh, we haven't launched on main yet. Yet uh, we're looking at that probably in the next few months. Uh, it's just uh, pending a, a you know a, a smart contract audit. Um, for what we hypothesize for the users, and uh, you know, this is also validated some some by uh, you know kind of our investor set, uh, and some of the conversations that we had. For example, I was just a consensus is that the, these are uh, you know it's it's an institutional product, right? So institutions use it, you know, let's say on uh, on large uh, you know loan books to manage risk. So this is why you you don't have a lot of people who are looking and say you know I'm going to go trade interest rate swaps today. Uh, because it's just not, let's say, uh, you know, a sexy retail instrument where, uh, you know, you can go gig along on the rate because you, you, you think that, you know, the rate's going to, you know, make you rich or, or move, for example. But you do use it to essentially manage risk. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to create this like, uh, stabilizing function, you know, for the, for the DeFi credit markets. 
So if we look at like what's happening in the market right now, you know, we, we have a lot of, uh, you know, large institutions, which, uh, you know, they, they have a lot of risk in the markets. And, uh, you know, so for example, um, you know, if you, if you have, if you have rate exposure, you know, you have, uh, you know, different ways that you need to, to mitigate either your, uh, I mean, this is, this is asset li- liability management, you know, this is a entire function in, inside of a bank, right? And so we, we believe that a lot of the, uh, you know, first of the, uh, you know, kind of the crypto CFI native companies will be using this because they have a lot of exposure to DeFi. You know, we know that, you know, for example, with some of the tag wallets from Celsius, that they have huge, huge exposure to DeFi. And one of the things that we're seeing right now is that the, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, difficulties with the risk management procedures. And some of that is because these tools don't exist. Uh, and, you know, this is one of the reasons that we're building this, you know, it's, it's, it's more of the stabilizing function, you know, for the, for the DeFi mm-hmm. credit markets. And so your thought is that, uh, this, this sort of more sophisticated trading market tool will using derivatives will attract larger, more institutional investors into crypto. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's what we're hoping for. Right. Um, because it's, it's not a very hypey project. You know, we're looking at building something that has, you know, a couple different pieces, right? The IPOR rate, it can take a life of its own, right? So what, what our goal with this is, is, uh, you know, that in the future, it's run by decentralized governance. It's pulling in from a lot of different money markets. You have a, d- a lot of different independent calculators that are making sure that this is, uh, you know, like to keep the, the sanctity of the rates. And then it lives on chain. So, for example, if you want to just query the uh, IPO Oracle contract to set your credit market, to set your, uh, you know, you want to offer car loans using the IPO rates, then you can just query that smart contract it's a public good that lives on chain, you know, and this is something that can take, uh, you know, a life of its own. Uh, and then we hope that, you know, this, these different sets of interest rate derivatives, like the interest rate swap, we're looking at uh, in building uh, interest rate futures, AMM, you know, potentially swaptions book, uh, you know, these will be larger structured products. So for example, if you're a DeFi bank, maybe, uh, you know, down the road, you're offering a car loan. Uh, you know, that's one that's querying, you know, to the IPOR Oracle and it's taking an IPOR interest rate derivative. But for the end consumer, it's it's something invisible. Like all you see on an interface is a fixed rate. You can choose between a fixed rate and a floating rate. And underpinning all of that are these tools that we built, but it's not necessary for you to know about them. So I, I would say, yeah, the tools are much more institutional, but the applications are for retail. Mm. And the, the, the key point there about the asset liability management, this is going to be the same philosophically. It's the same practices and principles that centralized finance would, would be thinking about, right? Yeah, we're not, absolutely. We're not changing how, you know, all these things are just duplicated on, on chain, right? Yeah. But right? the thing so, is you get better transparency, right? So, well, you know, I, uh, one of the things I tweeted out recently, so this is about, you know, right now we're in a, we're in a pretty big market meltdown. We've had, uh, you know, the collapse of a couple, you know, big projects, uh, protocols, and, you know, potentially, uh, you know, some central entities. But the, the, the reason that we can see some of these happen is because, you know, a lot of it is happening on chain, right? So we can see, uh, let's say, these large loan positions, and we can look, look at the Ave books, we can look at the average liquidation price, and this is all transparent, right? So this is something that's actually quite amazing. Right. The, the people that are trading this, they all have the same knowledge. They can all look at, you know, the Ethereum blockchain. They can look at Aave. They can see, you know, this, this, this large debt position, understand, you know, what the liquidation price is and they can act accordingly. 
right? That's a huge amount of transparency that we don't get from CFI institutions. So this is really cool. And this is why, you know, we wanted to build something that is only focused on DeFi because you get that transparency. Like we could build a rate that is, for example, pulling from the CFI lenders. We can pull, we can query and, uh, you know, trust, you know, BlockFi, Nexo, Celsius, Genesis, but, you know, we don't have a view into their lending books. You know, they could self-report it, but then it's no different than the LIBOR, right? So we build this kind of on-chain rate because you get this you get this amazing open data with DeFi, you know, and this open data with DeFi, you know, even in this meltdown, the thing that I think is amazing is that you can actually make, uh, you can make judgments based on, you know, what's transparently happening on-chain. So that's, that's, that's really cool. And what do you think of, do you see maybe the first phase of this being companies like BlockFi, Nexo, Celsius, I mean, Celsius, I want to talk to you about in a second, but do you see these um, crypto first CFI companies using a tool like this to basically manage wealth liability? Yeah, I would right? hope so. I, w- I would hope yeah. so. I mean, this is a, you know, the, the, ri- the riskier your behavior is, the more you're essentially playing with client funds, right? So, uh, yeah. You know, and this is uh, this is maybe you know the the risk taking behavior is is you know you know it doesn't it doesn't line up like what you know uh, the most important uh, you know function of a bank is 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 the risk management right and so yeah I would hope so you know you have different things uh, you have different products out there you have uh, that you know you have to rely on this kind of internal treasury you have to uh, you know. You have to believe without this transparency. And, you know, that's kind of the, the, the crypto ethos is, uh, you know, it's don't trust, verify, right? Mm. Yeah. And it seems like I'm, I'm curious to ask you what your thoughts are on speculative, probably, on the Celsius situation. It, it, just to frame it, though, first, these companies operate with the premise that you deposit your crypto into their managed accounts. Yeah. And in exchange for that, you have... Uh, functionality. You know, you can quickly send a wire transfer to your bank. You mm-hmm. can gain interest on the deposits that you have. They have different features, like you can deposit and commit or stake for six months or a year, and they'll pay you a higher interest rate for that. They have an exchange to swap back and forth. So, and they also are very easy to use. So, there's a lot of functionality. I heard the number of 1.7 million accounts that Celsius had. Do you have a a feeling or intuition or knowledge or thoughts on what they were potentially doing that was, um, that bit them so hard. I mean, as of today, June 15th, they've closed trading withdrawals, swaps. Um, and they seem to be in a really rocky place, which is a precarious situation because they, their CEO only a few days ago was like, no one's having any issues withdrawing. Everything's fine. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, f- first of all, I, I, you know, I, I, I will only you know speak to what I know. Uh, the second is, you know, we actually do share, uh, you know, a common investor in Gumi in Gumi cryptos. Uh, but you know, some things that are known is, you know, they have a, a lot of wallets that have been some of the most active wallets in DeFi. You know, so there was this mystical zero XB one wallet, which was theirs. So we know that they did get hit pretty hard in in a hack, uh, you know, with Badger DAO. So lost, uh, lost a uh, you know a significant portion of funds, but they were also a- able to raise a you know a significant equity round after that. So I think their last raise was around four hundred million, right? So as far as I understand, in this in this uh, current context, you know, in 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 the case of a bank run, you know, you have to have access to your client funds. And so, for example, um, 
one of the big, uh, you know, talks is about the staked ETH depegging, right? And so what is staked ETH? So staked ETH was, it, you know, <clears throat> I can't remember when, but over a year ago, you could put in, uh, you, you could lock your Ethereum, start earning, uh, you know, staking rewards on, you know, the Ethereum version two. But the question is, you cannot get access to those until, you know, this, uh, this uh, switch to proof of stake goes live. Right. So you essentially have this this kind of locking function, you know, where you don't have access to these funds. Right. So it's 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 locked. Uh, and then there's a, a secondary mechanism which trades stake ETH for ETH. Right. So you can also become liquid in that. But it's a, it's also a derivative instrument. Right. Mm. So if you lock too much Ethereum and then your customers come and ask for the Ethereum, well, you can't necessarily get it back. And then maybe if you need to get it, you have to. You know, you have to trade your staked ETH for ETH at a discount, and so this is what's going behind the depegging. Another thing is, you know, uh, the uh, you know this particular wallet is being loaded up with a, you know a lot of assets to make sure that this this uh, you know their credit market, you know, or the, their their DeFi money market uh, positions don't get liquidated, right? So it's pushing down and down the the liquidation price, right? So it's it's essentially maintaining that um, that over collateralization. Uh, ratio. But this is also kind of a game of chicken and mouse because, you know, uh, there's likely, you know, one or several large firms that are on the other side of this trade that are essentially trying to, you know, liquidate you know, these different entities because, you know, they can also stand a profit. So this is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, let's say, precarious game right now. And it's coming off of, uh, let's say, the, um, the unwinding uh, or the complete collapse of Terra. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, with the macro view, uh, you know, with the 75 point, uh, you know, BPS hike uh, today is, uh, you know, everything's looking quite dreary, right? So you have these uh, also, you know, macro uh, events, you know, large, uh, large centralized institutions that, you know, are, are on the risk of or have, uh, you know, essentially melted down or got liquidated or margin called. And, uh, you know, then you have this, you uh, I mean, these cascading, uh, you know, prices, but, you know, I mean, central entity is different from DeFi, right? So a centralized entity, if you're looking at a bank, you know, it has so many different products that it, it essentially, um, it, it matches, uh, and, uh, let's say de-risks one product against the other. Right. And so a centralized entity can typically offer, you know, let's say higher yields than a, than a, let's say a decentralized entity. So if you look at like, uh, you know, on the, on the lending book, you have different credit products, you have trading products, you have spot, uh, and, and you can essentially, uh, you know, cut margins on, on all sides of those and potentially offer, uh, you know, a higher return. Whereas in a DeFi protocol, you know, look at Aave, it's just uh, taking one product for another. You have, uh, you have, uh, you know, the, you lend the ETH uh, or, or you, you stake, you, uh, you post your collateral and you borrow, right? And there's a single instrument. And so they have to cut wide spreads on that because, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, a single product. This is why it's very difficult in payments to complete with a, compete with a bank because a bank can always keep their spreads extremely low because, you know, payments is, is one of their, you know, revenue sources. But for a payments company, it's the only revenue source. And would you also say that for a traditional bank, it, the, the, the competitive advantage that they have is the ability to go to the government and get a, a loan default in force? Like, yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. It, yeah. Yeah. 
so I, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, what's the spectrum here for, for Celsius? They are, worst case scenario, they're doing what? They're tr- trading all, everyone's money however they want, really completely up to them speculatively, um, without any guidelines. I mean, what, what, is, what does it look like to have good versus bad uh, wealth management for these companies, do you think? I mean, first is transparency, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, there's reasons for regulatory, you know, that you segregate operational and customer funds, right? This is, uh, this is something that's huge from the regulatory because, you know, you don't want to commingle these accounts, right? So first is transparency. And the second one is actually, you know, so if we don't, if you don't have transparency on the internal treasuries, uh, you know, at least, uh, you know, what people are making their, their, um, their decisions on is what they do have transparency to, which are actually the DeFi positions, right? So, you know, as much as they don't have a look into their books, you know, I can look with everyone else at the smart contract and understand, you know, what their, uh, you know, what the, you know, the volume of the, uh, the, you know, the, 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 of their debt position and also the liquidation price. And so if you have this average liquidation price and, uh, you know, you're trying to, uh, you know, essentially, you know, take down this institution because you have a bet one way or another, then, you know, it, it tells you how much you have to push the price in, in, in the spot markets, in the, in the derivatives markets. You know, so mm-hmm. if you lower the liquidation price to, a, you know, say Ethereum at 1K, then you need to push it to 999, right? To, so you have this on-chain transparency that's, that's quite different. So as far as the risk taking, you know, all, all I can speak to is, you know, what we see in DeFi wallets, right? And it's a, it's a lot of exposure. Uh, and even let's say if we take the, the, the locking of stake ETH, then you know that you don't have access to this, uh, right now. Or if you do, you have to take it at a discount. This is why, uh, you know, uh, the stake ETH is trading below, uh, liquid ETH right now, which can also be an interesting counter trade. You know, if you, if you're, if you're, um, you know, bullish on, on, on Ethereum and you're bullish on the emerge happening quick. Then, you know, it's also a good uh, time to pick up discounted state deep. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mm. Yeah, stake ETH, stake ETH would it would have to be worth less than ETH, right? Always, right? Because you're just well. I mean, it it has some. Uh, I mean, it has the rewards tied to it, so it should really be worth more. You know, it should be getting around, I think, twelve percent per annum. But you're betting on. Uh, I mean, so so the the calculation you're doing is what can I get you? What, you know, what what yields can I get using my ETH today or in the next year? And what's the what's the likelihood that this uh, this merge is going to happen? And so, for example, you know, I, ha- I had a choice to stake my ETH and I-, I kept them liquid because at that time you had so many different a- alternate opportunities to, you know, essentially get better than, uh, you know, 12% per annum on ETH. So, uh, you know. Do you think the, uh, the Ethereum 1 to 2 is the biggest news in crypto? I mean, not news. It's the biggest potential uh, story that could affect things. 
Yeah, it's going to be huge. Um, but I mean, it's, it's being pushed back and back and back. So, uh, you know, and that's also causing more stress, right. And more, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's creating more risk, right. So for example, in, in, in the case where you have a lot of stake ETH position and, you know, you have client, uh, redemptions, you can't satisfy them because it's locked, right? So that's why they're having to take the hair, the haircut on those yeah. positions. But, you know, um, for, you know, for example, I, I like the, I like the proof of stake mechanism. Like I mentioned, I, you know, I'm an advisor to Cardano or I was an advisor to Cardano, uh, which is a, a you know, proof of stake chain. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's much more, um, I mean, you get different trade-offs, right? So it's much more, uh, efficient in terms of, uh, power. You don't have to have, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the mining, you get different trade-offs in terms of, uh, in terms of openness, in terms of, uh, you know, it, it's better for security purposes. It's always easier. It's always less costly to get half the hashing power than it is to acquire half the network, right? You have different trade-offs. Right. But yeah, it should be. So I, I don't know all the implications, you know, and this is something that I need to study, but I, I just don't have time. The, you know, the new burning mechanism, I think it was EIP 1559 and the switch to proof of stake. So I'm not, to be honest, uh, you know, uh, well versed in the whole monetary implications of it. But from an efficiency perspective, I think it makes sense. Mm. Yeah, and the, uh, going back to Celsius for a second, and just BlockFi and, and Nexo conceptually, the the price of their their token, you know, they don't banks don't have bank tokens, and you don't need a, a token to have this business model, right? <laughs> right. It's something that they right. added on as like basically an incentive mechanism to 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 stake with them and to keep your money keep your money with them. You know, you can earn. It's it's kind of a simple model. It's like you can earn you know, 8% on your USDC, or you can earn 10% on your USDC if you want to get paid in Celsius coin. Sure. The Celsius coin, the the plummet of that coin had, had seemingly been the, the red flag to a lot of people. Um, I, do you think it's a, just a combination of things that they're feeling internally with Celsius coin dropping, potentially the, uh, the staked ether that they have, and then I don't know if Luna would have negatively impacted them. Um, and just the general market crash means that, you know, it's like kind of a structural challenge for all banking type companies. When you, when you give loans out, yeah. uh, when you, you know, and people all come at the same time, this happened in the U S banking system in the 1930s, right? When the great depression, everyone was trying to liquidate, get their money out of the bank. The bank doesn't keep hundred percent of the assets in their account. They lend it out, which is the whole model of a bank. Uh, but it, it does it does mean that you're vulnerable to this kind of thing. With with over collateralized lending, it shouldn't happen because you should have higher collateral, you know, than 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 debt. Yeah. So, it really, you know, let's say I was if, I'll typecast it in the general. The more risk that you take, the more risk that you are exposed to, right? And that <laughs> that's that's really it, right? So the more conservative companies, you know, uh, okay. So let's actually push this up to Luna, right? So Luna was promising twenty percent per annum on a stable coin. And no one asks how, you know, I, I, I talked with my co-founder, Dimitri, he, he looked at it and he said, Hey, it, it's basis cash. It will never work. And it turned out that, you know, Do Kwan was also the founder of basis cash, you know, the well, a pseudonymous founder, right? 
which is just, uh, you know, you have two assets that are tied to each other. So, you know, they, you, you have, uh, like, for example, Ethereum, it derives its value from a whole number of things. It's, uh, you know, on-chain, it's on-chain transactions. It's the demand for gas. It's the value of the assets on Ethereum. And then if you take a, uh, you know, uh, debt against that for USD, uh, USD has a different risk profile, right? They're, they're not correlated. Right. And Ethereum doesn't derive its value solely from being able to take debt against it. Whereas in the case of Terra, that was it. Right. So you have this, you have this risk up, risk down. Right. They're, they're 100, they're 100% correlated. One. And two, no one asked it, where do you get the yields from? Right. So if you look at IPOR, actually, uh, the IPOR rates right now are all sub two. So if you look at, uh, you know, IPOR DAI, IPOR USDC, IPOR, uh, USDT, they're all sub 2%, which is, I think, you know, I mean, you have the you have the treasuries which are outpacing the DeFi loans right now, right? But you know, it's maybe a more uh, sober, sensible market, and the reason is, you know, it's actually showing a, you know, this this rate is only set by, uh, you know, the cash borrows over the cash available. So it means that fewer people are taking loans against the amount of uh, cash that's available to be borrowed. Uh, so if you look at the trends, you know, you saw this DeFi yields dropping from like 100% per annum to 20% to annum to 12, and is now down to sub two, right? So how are you getting 20%? I mean, this is... A, how did they claim, how did they claim that they got it? I, I, I really don't know. Uh, to be honest, uh, I, I, I didn't look too much into it. Uh, yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, I saw it rise, rising in popularity, uh, you know, had some of the guys on our team look into it. And say, you know, no, it's just this, it's, um, it's this self-fulfilling prophecy until it unwinds, right? My, my question is, wh- why is that, you know, you guys are very smart people spending your time adjacent to this market, adjacent to what they're doing. You're, you're capable of assessing this, this project. Uh, you're capable of assessing it. There's so many people who have their money into this project that, that aren't capable. And a successful market works when, a good percentage of people are doing diligence and assessing the market and effectively acting as a signal for unsophisticated investors. I don't think everyone coming in is going to do the equal amount of diligence on a project. You know, once a project reaches a critical mass, there's like perceptual risk mitigation. Yeah. You know, if it's like Tether, for instance, or USDC, it's like, I'm not going to go and audit Coinbase or go deep, but I trust that people will. And I think there's, how did the, why did that that mechanism that trust hierarchy break down? Do you think on this project? You, okay, so you had a couple, uh, you had a few prominent people on crypto Twitter that were decrying it, and they were all getting attacked. Mm-hmm. Right? In the end, they were they were vindicated. But the biggest thing is, I mean, you can't underestimate greed, right? So greed trumps, you know, a lot of things, right? So we're a pretty uh, you know, let's say we go back to IPOR is a pretty conservative product because it's, uh, the IPOR rate is a, it's like a, it's like a thermometer. It mirrors the, uh, the sentiment in the room. So for example, if the actual borrowing rates on Aave and Compound are low, then the IPOR rate is low. If it's high, it's high. It just, it just shows that and it bets against this actual rate movement on, on the markets. But what we're looking at is, uh, you know, in that borrower pays lender, right? So someone has to pay for that. Someone, the, you know, like all these like play to earn games. Well, you have to have a buyer, right? Mm-hmm. In, in gaming, right? If you have these, uh, these tokens and you're selling them, someone has to be buying them, right? You always need to find a buyer. So look into the basic mechanisms, right? So in the 20%, in the 20% case, okay, so maybe it's okay, but you got to see, okay, so where's the 20% coming from? 
if it just comes from the Tobin subsidies, then it is self-fulfilling until it's not, right? So actually, maybe, let, maybe uh, you know, I'll go into like a, why, for example, from the fundamental construction of, let's say, an iPort interest rate swap, you know, it's different from this, uh, you know, 20%, you know, just out of the blue, right? So, uh, you know, it depends on how you construct an instrument. So simply put, let's say if you're a depositor in an IPOR uh, pool, USDT, USDC, or DAI, right? Essentially, that's putting there to underwrite a, a, a contract. And you only get paid for that if someone takes a contract against you, right? So all the people that take a contract against them, they pay a, a fee to open that contract. And that fee goes back to the pool, right? So there's, uh, you know, your basic uh, principle, you know, startup 101, someone pays for your service, right? <laughs> the second one is that the AMM is designed to price the pool risk neutral. So it's winning as often as it's losing. Uh, there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, you know, uh, if you, you know, if you skew it too far towards the pool, then your traders get wrecked and there's no reason to use the instrument. Uh, also, if you don't price it right, then the spreads are too high and uh, someone's going to undercut the, the protocol, right? Someone's going to offer a better, better deal. But the, the key is managing risk to make sure that it's, it's always kind of at this risk neutral, right? So there should maybe be a slight edge by the pool but the pool you know the pool winnings and earnings off of the off of the um off of the instruments you know should be marginal so they're really making off those fees and then while the funds are sitting there but they're not being paid out you know to the uh to the you know at the end of the contract they go to Abe, they go to compound to get this money market yield so they're actually going back to the markets that they're underpinning because we, we know that there's some certain amount of, of, uh, of debt being taken there and someone's paying, you know, to get access to those tokens, right? So there's always someone on the buy side of those to actually create this, this value. And, you know, that's, that's the simple fundamental construction. And that's, um, you know, kind of what we miss. So this is why we did a deep dive into, into the TVL of DeFi, uh, the DeFi platforms at the end of 2020 and, and looked at, okay, so, what has solid fundamentals. And most of them were just trying to, you know, re rehypothecate yield on yield on yield. But a lot of those yields were just tied to uh, token subsidies. Mm. So token subsidies, like in, uh, you know, if you go to traditional startups, you know, maybe you, uh, you subsidize, you know, like customer acquisition costs, or maybe you give someone like 50, a hundred bucks to sign up for an account. Okay. That's like a token subsidy, but at some point you have to find equilibrium. Right, so, right. Exactly. Yeah, you can be overcapitalized in the beginning. You know, you just raise a massive round of funding. You give a hundred dollars to sign up. You boost, yeah. you boost, you boost your numbers. But a percentage of those have to come back and spend money on the platform, get value, and be willing to stay for some period of time in order to keep that flywheel going. Otherwise, yeah, it flywheel goes off. Uh, it, what, what's your? Do you have a stance now on uh, BlockFi, Nexo? I don't know if anyone else is big in that space, but do you feel like structurally there's value, long-term value that these companies offer? I know Celsius came out the day after and offered to buy, sorry, Nexo offered to buy Celsius the day after. Do you kind of look at the others and say, well, this is an individual Celsius problem, or do you think this is like a more broad industry problem? Well, I, I, I look at that. I'm, I'm a bit more of a skeptic. So I look at that, uh, I look at that as saying maybe, you know, it's a good marketing ploy. And maybe it's also a way to, uh, you know, kind of push off their own transparency. I don't have any reason to actually use Nexo. Uh, so I, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it's quite opportunistic. 
but they're also, you know, from what I know about them, they're, they're less risk taking, right? So they have a much more, you know, kind of solid risk management procedures. So, you know, I, I think a lot of the, you know, <clears throat> I, I don't think it's a systemic problem. Yeah. 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 You have, you have certain actors, you have certain, you know, kind of risk levels. And, uh, I mean, the other, the other uh, big news right now is, you know, the potential insolvency of three arrows, which at, at one time was, I think, uh, estimated to be about five billion. Right. But, you know, it depends on your risk procedures or, you know, everyone's a genius in a, in a bull market. And, uh, you really found out, you know, when, 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 you know, everything goes to hell, then, you find out, you know, how your risk management procedures are, are actually right. So, uh, I mean, this is kind of the shakeout that's, that's, that's revealing these things. Pretty wild, pretty wild. I mean, these things have to have ripple effects, you know, it's like a massive multi-billion dollar project or a, a company with over one and a half million users doesn't just go down and then like, that's it. So I imagine at a minimum people are scared and they move to maybe completely decentralized or more cold storage or out of crypto entirely. Um, and at worst case scenario, there's over-regulation and then that stifles innovation for the rest of us. Yeah, this is, this is one of the, one of the issues, you know, about this industry in general is it's not very good at self-regulating. Uh, you have a lot of cavalier people that actually, you know, it, it, the, the, the better you do at self-regulating, the less, uh, you know, external regulation that you need, right? So, uh, you know, the more big issue, big problems that you have, the more you, you know, so from, from collapse, collapses of several projects, it's going to be the Trojan horse to ride in, you know, to put the, you know, the stablecoin regulation. Um, but, you know, for example, I was around for the collapse of MT Gox, you know, and we were, we used to be the number two exchange to them. And for example, I, I knew, uh, like I, I, I knew them. We dealt with them on a, a kind of a daily basis, and there's a couple others, you know. So in the early days, you know, uh, uh, there was Gox, there was Trade Hill, and actually, a uh, bit instant. Uh, Charlie Shrem was uh, the first kind of a. Uh, uh, it, it was a, a tool for arbitrators to go between Gox and Trade Hill. And we knew from some of the, let's say, the delays in the payment, you know, that they probably weren't whole. And you know, I. I that was, uh, you know, very early on. And, you know, Gox really, uh, it really clipped a lot of big players, right? Mm. So, uh, you have a lot of big collapses, but these aren't necessarily tied to the technology. They're, they're individual businesses in this, in this space, you know? So, you know, crypto for better or for worse is say, you know, everything is, everything is everything. Yeah. You know, DeFi is, uh, is this token, which is this token, which is Bitcoin, which is bad for the environment, which is, speculative which is a ponzi scheme is everything but you know it's like uh you're looking at there's there's uh there's actors that you know are are, are rational there's act actors that are risk-taking there's actors that are fraudulent and this is every market right so mm -hmm. you know crypto as a space it has kind of this like let's say you heap everything uh, or other people heap everything together uh and say you know it's all bad but you know you really have to uh, you know, evaluate different projects, different tokens, uh, different uh, different uh, centralized lenders, different trading desks, different funds, and uh, you know they all have uh, you know differences. You know, yeah, it's hard to know too. Like, who's to say? Like, I mean, why would Celsius be an obvious mistake? Like, you know, millions of people thought otherwise, and uh, we'll see how that story goes. It's, yeah, yeah, it's like it's tough to know. You know, that's. 
that's the that's where I'm like, as much as I hate government regulation and crypto, unless there's just a culture of, you know, th- there's always a uh, equal and opposite reaction to every force. And when a company implodes or a project implodes, people learn, people make decisions. I think the the industry gets more resilient. They'll certainly not make the same exact mistakes twice, hopefully, most people. And so projects maybe develop a culture of being more transparent. But then again, it always changes. I mean, yeah. Do you think more regulation would be helpful? More like government regulation in crypto would be helpful? Or in in some way, would it be more helpful? With regulation, you get clarity. And when you have regulation, you know, like, it depends, right? So if you look at some of the, uh, <clears throat> okay, so for example, uh, you know, Ipor Labs is a software builder in Switzerland. You know, Switzerland has, you know, the the the, the Finma, right? In, in Singapore, you have Mass, right? You have single, like, uh, you know, financial regulators, and they're very well-versed, right? Whereas in the U.S., you have all these fragmented, uh, you know, different regulations across different states between different regulators. You have a huge uh, kind of battle between the, you know, the CFTC and the uh, and the SEC and even, you know, let's say the the OCC. If you're talking about stable coins, you know, and so kind of all this battle is. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what's what really what's going to happen, right? So the SEC has been quite, uh, you know, aggressive. Going after you know a lot of uh, you know essentially you know like a lot of the crypto scams, but using that maybe to expand the remit. Uh, whereas you know the CFTC is looking to maybe uh, you know get uh, you know governance over a lot of the uh, really classifying a lot of the utility tokens as commodities, and we can see that in the proposed uh, the Senator Loomis bill. And you know it it really depends on what form it takes, you know. But there's always this. Um, this uncertainty right and as an entrepreneur you have to be okay with uncertainty you know like uh you know in 2011 there was there was nothing about this you know and there was no you know like let's say even like on the on the personal tax right Mm -hmm. um, put out by the irs there was a there was a notice in 2013 and then nothing i believe until 2018 right so you have five years of uncertainty on how to report gains for example and so it really depends. It really depends on how open it is and how understanding it is, you know, to the actual technology, what the actual compliance is. You know, if you look at the um, the bit license, you know, you know this. Uh, I think it was uh, Lasky, uh, you know, who drafted the bit license. Uh, Kraken had an amazing blog post where it showed the Statue of Liberty with, uh, I think, burning eyes or something, saying that mm. they were leaving New York because it was, uh, you know, it was too cumbersome and too to uh you know to comply and then in the end uh you know lasky went around and turned uh you know and, and set up a, a consulting firm on how to get the bit license so you know i mean it really depends but uh if you have a nimble regulator that understands like like crypto in general is like a genie you can't put back in the bottle right so if we go back to that first um explanation you know peer-to-peer crypto anarchy bit torrent for money like look at the bit torrent example it's the first like kind of decentralized application right so bit torrent is no <clears throat> it's no less problematic than than let's say uh what was it napster hmm. but napster could be shut down because it was on a set of uh, centralized servers hmm. where bit torrent cannot because it's a decentralized network so now it's not to say that for example 
whether you say BitTorrent is good, whether you say BitTorrent is bad, or whether you're neutral, it doesn't matter to stop the technology because you can't put the genie back on the bottle, right? So it's more like understanding that from a regulator's point of view, you say, okay, so how do we deal with this? Mm-hmm. How do we deal with this? And then also, you know, let's say the more, uh, the more aggressive you are, the more you'll have your best innovators pick up and move overseas, you know, because. Yeah, you know, that's the, know, that's they, the, yeah, that's the you, price. You, you kill the innovation, you rise the cost of compliance and the compliance for what? Right. Yeah. So it, it really depends. I'm, I'm totally with you. I, uh, totally agree on the negative downsides of pushing people out. So we'll see, man. Well, keeping influential, I mean, we're, while it feels overwhelming and disconnected and fragmented regulatory wise, like, you know, send them tweets or I, I think players like you who are wise and experienced and sophisticated, uh, matter a lot. And I don't know to what extent you guys are engaged with the regulatory guidance, but, uh, whatever you're doing, keep doing it, do more of it. <laughs> Help us not cripple ourselves as a country. Uh, Darren, this has been a lot of fun, man. I, I, I wish you guys the best on the launch into the mainnet and thereafter. So hope to have you back on one day. All right. Thanks, Mike. All right. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, and more. The handler one day told her this whole thing about how they've been terraforming on Mars, and they're building a colony, and they're recruiting specific people of specific bloodlines and specific talents and skill sets to go onto the planet. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.